Welcome to the public morality. Beginning with President Ronald Reagan, it has been customary for every president during the annual State of the Union address in some variation to state, the State of the Union is strong. Beyond the predictable bipartisan cheering, what exactly does that mean? Does it mean the state of American democracy is strong? In America's diverse multicultural experiment, the answer to the aforementioned question is subjective. We are honored on the public morality to be in conversation with one of the nation's leading public intellectuals, Alice Coase. For 17 years, Coase was a columnist and contributing editor for Newsweek magazine. He is a former chairman of the editorial board and editorial page editor of New York Daily News. He's also the author of a dozen books on issues of international and national concern, including the best-selling Rage of a Privileged Class and Democracy, If We Can Keep It. Coase is currently the director of Renewing American Democracy. Ellis Coase, welcome to The Public Morality. I'm delighted to be here, Byron. Uh, I, I want to begin with having you uh, uh, define American democracy. I know we just had a State of the Union address, and every president, I think, since Ronald Reagan says the state of our union is strong. But how do you, Ellis Coast, uh, assess American democracy in its present moment? Well, I mean, that's a very interesting question, and and I I think it's probably not quite as strong as President Biden suggests that it is, but we're not on the verge of a revolution either. I mean, one indication is the uh, index put together by the global state of democracy. And what they have found in their last uh, couple of, of uh, reports is that the United States uh, has a declining democracy. Um, and by that, they mean that uh, electoral representation is endangered in certain ways that, that they specifically cited um, the 2021 election, you know, when uh, Trump, as we all know, basically declared himself the winner, even though he was the loser, um, and the strong public support for that. They, they have cited the leaning toward authoritarianism that we've seen, you know, in, in many quarters, you know, in the last, um, few years. Uh, to that, you could add uh, the restrictions that have been passed by numerous states, um, according to, I guess, the Brennan Center. Um, as of well, the end of last year, you had, um, since beginning in 2021, you have 18 states that have passed some 34 restrictive voting laws, uh, which disproportionately affect people of color. So, uh, so, so by a reasonably objective basis, you can say the state of democracy is declining in the United States. And I think also on a, on a subjective basis, uh, people feel that. I mean, we have, a, we have a Supreme Court that's clearly out of touch with the majority of the people. And we have a political process that many, many people feel um, does not really represent them at all. Um, as much as there may be a temptation to place the causes you just outlined um, at the doorstep of uh, former President Donald Trump. Uh, but if one also factors, say, 
uh, I'll just pick 1964 when Goldwater says you got to go hunting where the ducks are. Then you right. have the Southern strategy with Nixon in 68. Ronald Reagan goes to Philadelphia, Mississippi in 1980 after getting the nomination uh, several miles from where three civil rights workers uh, were murdered in 64 to say, I believe in states' rights. You got the Willie Horton commercial in 88, the Jesse Helms hands commercial in 1990. Mm -hmm. I can just keep going with this lineage all the way up to the present moment with Governor Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Trump may get credit for the unvarnished version that he placed into the mainstream, but there's been a long systematic othering. I think you're, I, I, I appreciate the historical context that you've put that in. I mean, the, the, the quote that you use from uh, Goldwater uh, was made at a meeting of the uh, one of the Republican bodies where he was basically saying, in this upcoming election, should we go after the black vote or not? And he emphatically said, no. Uh, and as you correctly said, he said, you should go hunting where the ducks are. Um, and since then, um, certainly the Republican Party has pursued a strategy that is designed to appeal to their base, which is a, an ever sort of shrinking uh, group of white voters compared to the rest of the population. And, and you're right, uh, Donald Trump didn't create that. Um, Donald Trump uh, was the beneficiary of that. In, in your book, um, your most recent book, uh, Race and Reckoning, you discussed the difficulty of what one may consider seminal moments in the American narrative void of considering the racial impact of those seminal moments. It therefore seems to me, based on your text, uh, the, as a culture, we're at race and apathy but race and reckoning, as you articulated, reflects a clarion call as to where a mature nation would need to be. Your thoughts, sir? Um, a, a mature nation would um, accept and adapt to what we are, as opposed to a fantasy um, of about what we should be uh, and, and, and a fantasy about what we once were. Um, one of the problems with political dialogue today is that so much of it revolves around an image of America that's unreal. Um, and there is, a, there is this, I mean, the, the, the very idea that you have a slogan that says we're going to make America great again assumes that, <clears throat> excuse me, that America, <clears throat> that, that America was much greater at some past point than it is now. And the way that greatness is defined is very often in ethnic and racial terms. I mean, the one thing that has supercharged um, the movement to disenfranchise voters, let's say, and has convinced many people, at least on the right, that the United States is diminishing as a country, is the fact that we have a, a growing minority population, a growing population of um, Black people and, uh, and Latinos in particular. And um, a number of demographers beginning a couple of decades ago began to project that at some date in the future, people put it at sometimes in the uh, 2030s and sometimes in the 2040s, but at some point in the future, 
the majority of so-called the, the number of so-called minorities will out outnumber the number of so-called whites. I mean, I think it's a ridiculous figure for lots of reasons which we can get into. But but there but there is that fear, um, and that fear was one of the things that made the urgency of the of the um, Trump campaign. Uh, particular poignant, particularly poignant, because a lot of people do fear for the future of this nation, and they fear that um, this majority minority uh, will take us in a fundamentally different direction than we've been in as a country, and will quite frankly ruin things for for white America. Um, I think that 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 analysis is flawed for all kinds of reasons, but it doesn't prevent people from being afraid of uh, what they see as a demographic threat looming. And I think that's why we see, among other things, uh, you know, we see all of this, this, this voter um, suppression uh, that's occurring. And that's why um, we have a, a, a huge set of political figures now who are totally detached from reality um, because they are fighting a threat that's not real uh, with arguments that um, don't have facts. Since we were having this conversation in February and it's, and it's Black History Month, um, Black History Month, sir, in its present form, Governor Ron mm -hmm. DeSantis notwithstanding, does that reflect uh, America's historical immaturity in that African-American history as well as other other histories, which are part of the American narrative, have been conveniently granted adjunct status, and we're sort of fine with that uh, paradigm. Your, your thoughts? Um, as you know, I mean, Carter Woodson um, basically founded Negro History Month um, in 1926 because he thought that the story of African Americans was being insufficiently told. I mean, he, he thought that uh, blacks were seen as brutes with no history at all, and and no and, and having made no participation uh, to the uh, American experiment, and whites were seen as noble and superior. And he thought that there needed to be a history um, of African American, but he thought that there needed to be a corrective to this, and his corrective was to institute a you know, Black History Week, which ultimately became, or instance, Institute Negro History Week, um, which ultimately became Black History Month. Um, he was right, um, but the problem is, is larger than we don't have enough good news about what Blacks have done in the past. Um, the problem is that there has consistently been a rewriting of American history, um, part of it to eradicate Blacks from that history, and part of it to give uh, Black Americans a much more nefarious role than reality. And, and, and you see this no more so than the way that the South rewrote the history of Reconstruction uh, after the Civil War. Um, for one brief shining moment, there was a period where large numbers of Blacks in the South were allowed to vote. Um, and Blacks were elected to office at every level, including um, briefly um, as governor in one case. You know, um, and 
when the segregationists took over the South again, because you know they had been occupied by essentially by uh, Northern troops, and the the compromise that awarded uh, Rutherford Hayes the presidency uh, also set up a, a set of conditions that removed the troops from the from the South, and so Southerners were were able to go back their own version of history. And in their version of history, uh, during that brief period where African-Americans were substantially in charge of at least large parts of, of the South or certain parts of the South, uh, chaos ruled. Um, in, in their version of history, the KKK were the heroes. In that version of history, um, the United States was headed for damnation until whites came along kicked the blacks out of office and once again took over. Um, that narrative uh, has been terribly powerful. It's a narrative that's, you know, many Southerners to this day accept as gospel and reality. Uh, and in a strange sort of way, it's the fear that uh, people are responding to when they look at the demographic, the demographic projections. They, you know, they, you know, they, they, they see this future um, which is a nightmare um, because of the nightmare vision that people painted uh, during Reconstruction. There is so much wrong with that description of history that we could take 10 hours you know, going into why that's incorrect. But it doesn't stop people from believing in it. And, from, and, and one of the things that makes this moment particularly charged is that there are a lot of people, um, certainly on the right, who think the future of America is very much at stake uh, in the same way that Southerners um, in 1860 thought the future of America was at stake. And, and of course, uh, the Southern states, many of them ended up succeeding um, because they saw that as the only way to keep the part of America that they were in vital um, and thriving. Um, they, of course, lost the war, but they won the post-war. Um, and uh, they brought the same kind of thinking, despite the fact that they were defeated in the Civil War. They brought the same kind of thinking that it caused the Civil War into post-American, uh, into post-war American society. And we've been dealing with that ever since. I mean, that's part of the reason why we have, we had segregated uh, armed forces as part of the reason why it was not until the 1960s that, that Blacks in most states of the South were allowed to vote in any, in any substantial numbers. Um, it's why we're still dealing with this issue that is so much a part of our history, but about which so many Americans are in denial. <laughs> I, I, it's really ironic because in, in your last answer, embedding your last answer is really a, a quote that I read in the piece you recently wrote for the LA Times uh, about Black history when you sort of, you cited Carter G. Woodson saying that, I don't have it in front of me, but that the, the Southern officials were, were actively promoting in ignorance. Um, that was 90 <laughs> years ago. And I'm hearing you say that's not a Southern problem. That's an American problem. It's an American problem now because it's become the um, the heart of part of the argument made by the Republican Party. So, I mean, you you mentioned uh, DeSantis earlier. Um, it's not just DeSantis. I mean, there is a huge movement in in the political right, which essentially 
well, they, they claim they want to erase uh, critical race theory uh, from public schools. Um, that's a nonsensical statement because critical race theory is not taught in public schools. Um, what they really want to, and, and, and if you ask one of these proponents of this legislation uh, what they want to bar, uh, and, and you ask them um, what is critical race theory, they cannot give you a, a definition of it because they don't know. Uh, essentially what they want to ban is anything that in their eyes makes white people look bad. Um, that includes, uh, of course, the whole legacy of slavery. It includes the whole legacy of Jim Crow. Um, one of the one of the stories that I, I wrote about um, in that um, column that you mentioned in the LA Times, you know, is a story of a of, of a young woman uh, who inspired um, Beloved, uh, the novel by Toni Morrison. Uh, and the short version of the story is you had a woman, her name was Margaret, but she had a, you know, Margaret Garner, um, who in 1856 um, was recaptured in Ohio, to which she had fled from Kentucky because she was fleeing enslavement. And rather than have her, because she had escaped with her children and her husband, and rather than have her children a return to states where they would be, become slaves, she decided she wanted to kill them and actually did manage to kill her young daughter. Um, and subsequently um, be, that became huge news, at least in newspapers in the North of the time uh, during, her, you know, um, during her trial. Um, that is a story they don't want you to understand. They don't, they don't want you to know anything about because it, documents exactly how awful enslavement was and, and it documents the lengths to which the South went to maintain it because part of the reason why Margaret Garner was recaptured was because of the Fugitive Slave Act passed in 1850, which basically forced Northern states to be complicit in returning escaped um, enslaved persons you know, to the South. So you so you so you had really um, abolitionists rallying around these escaped enslaved people and refusing to return them, uh, even though the law said that they had to. So it was it was a, it was a huge mess in terms of what was happening in society at that time. But but uh, the insistence of Southerners to keep their slaves was at the center of that. That's a history they don't want um, taught in schools because they see, they see this history as one being unflattering, you know, to white Americans, and they don't want any of that. They also think that when you look at that entire history, not just that chapter in the 1850s, but the entire history of, of enslavement, um, you very quickly find yourself bumping into arguments for reparations of some sort, which of course they, which, which they think is anathema to everything that they believe in. So rather than own up to the reality of American history, they want to, to teach uh, people a whitewashed version. You, uh, you, you made reference when you started off to Carter Woodson, what he was, what he was referring to, and he, and he made that argument in an article uh, in, in 1931 in, in the Chicago Defender, what he was specifically referring to uh, was the practice of southern of, of certain southern school districts to fire teachers 
who taught Blacks the Constitution. Um, and the rationale for that policy at the time was that if Blacks really learned what was in the Constitution, they might start demanding more rights. Yeah, so it became de facto illegal to teach blacks about the Constitution, um, and that was what that was what Carter Woodson was uh, railing against and disturbed by. It, it seems uh, these are my words in, in our current public discourse that we are saddled with uh, what I define is inflammatory, meaningless jargon. So I would throw racism into that because I, you know, because that really is a subjective term. Uh, I would throw socialism into that term. I would also add critical race theory and the 1619 project. I would even throw every president, every president um, since Reagan, State of the Union says the State of the Union is strong. So how does this loose language uh, just take your pick. You probably have other examples. How does this loose language impact our democracy? Because people believe it. Um, at least a lot of people believe it. I mean, it's 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 stunning to me that the last polls I've seen, and I suspect it's still the case, the last polls that I've seen, um, a majority of Republicans think the last election was stolen, which was which is a total lie. Um, but it's but it's a lie that's been consistently made. Um, the there have always been lies in politics everywhere, um, but not at the level and not at the preposterousness that we see now. Um, and when the Washington Post added up the amount, the number of lies that Trump had told during his presidency, they got to a number of over thirty thousand. Uh, his entire presidency was a lie. Basically, everything out of his mouth was a lie. Uh, and when you have a when you have an entire group of people, a, a huge portion of Americans believing these lies uh, and this and and these crazy theories as fact, uh, you get things like the uh, the attention, you know, the the attempt to invade the Capitol and, and overturn the election. Uh, you get people responding to threats that aren't real um, because they are responding, as you said, to very inflammatory language that's nonsensical, um, but that for various reasons, um, partly because it's articulated by people in whom they have respect, um, partly because it agrees with their own perception of reality, um, they accept this nonsense and act on it. Um, and that's very dangerous. I mean, we've seen countless um, violent incidents of um, various minorities being attacked, um, of, of a couple of very high profile shootings, and uh, in, in one in a black church, the other in, in the store um, that was basically uh, uh, serving blacks because there are individual nuts who believe this nonsense, but putting the nuts aside, you know, every most people weren't picking up guns and going looking for Asians to shoot or for black people to shoot. Um, but they are voting their fears um, and they're putting crazy nuts in the office uh, who perpetuate this nonsense. I, I wanna turn our attention uh, uh, to the recent uh, murder 
of uh, Tyree Nichols in Memphis. Sure. And given that the primary assailants uh, appear to be African-American, uh, mm -hmm. and that goes against the popular narrative that's been created, is there something that connects that tragedy to the broader conversation that, that we've been having along with how we began this conversation with the state of American democracy? Well, there's certainly something that connects it with a consistent view of black men in America. I mean, I mean, one of the things that people often don't accept um, as real, you know, is that the view of African-Americans that is pervasive in American history and in American literature has not only affected um, how whites view blacks, it's affected how blacks view blacks. Um, this idea of black men as brutes uh, who are um, likely yeah, to be very violent and, and therefore need to be put down, um, not only affects um, the way that many whites see black men, it affects the way that many, that many blacks see black men. You know, and so it's, it's hardly surprising to me you know, that you have a case where four black cops um, basically, you know, murder a black guy um, because they have stereotypes in their head and, and that make that seem something to them worth doing. Um, I remember when I was growing up as a kid in Chicago, um, there was a, a famous uh, black cop um, who, we know, who we knew as Bluffs Davis and he was called Bluffs Davis um, because he loved to put on his gloves and beat the heck out of black men. Um, that was how he got his pleasure. Uh, so skin color is no insulation against having racism and against people of the same skin color because this, this sickness has been so pervasive in American society that it has affected all of us. Uh, Jesse Jackson got a lot of um, criticism many years ago. Uh, when he made a, a surprisingly um, frank admission. And that admission was that when he hears footsteps behind him, he's reassured when he turns around and sees that it's someone white as opposed to somebody black. He wasn't saying that was right. What he was confessing is that even he, um, who was a, whose whole life was in fighting for equality and fighting for civil rights, had been affected by this sickness. Is it possible uh, for a nation, this nation in particular, that founded in part on a, my words, color-coded caste system uh, to sustain itself, committed at least on paper to liberty and equality while maintaining this incomplete history of itself that you've been articulating through our conversation? I think it's very difficult. I think we need to acknowledge uh, the shortcomings of our predecessors, uh, and we need to deal with them. I think it's very hard to get beyond them if you don't, I think because we still have um, realities that were created by that history. Um, segregation, which is, is still an intense problem, uh, economic inequality, which is still a, a huge problem. Uh, many of the roots of that lay in this history, and we can't deal with it uh, effectively without acknowledging that, it seems to me. Um, on the other hand, I think we we are changing America. You know, 
particularly uh, younger people tend to be significantly less racist than older people, tend to at least acknowledge um, that the argument for equality is the only argument that makes sense. Uh, so I don't think we have a future that's unremittingly bleak. And I think we have a lot of indications that we are capable of change, but I think there are things that will make that change much, much easier. And one would be to stop lying about who we are, stop lying about our, our history and accept it as part of that, what, what created the current America. Um, I know I was, I was critiquing uh, loose language earlier, so I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna come back to that real quickly. So Ellis Coase, how are you defining racism? That's a term I don't define um, for the most part um, because everyone, because I think that it's a term that is um, seen very, very differently by whites and by blacks. And I'll, you know, by, by that, I mean, when many whites talk about racism, they talk about individual um and blatant racism. They 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 see racism as you know lynching people or um, I'm not bull. Are you calling me bull Connor? I'm not bull Connor kind of thing. Right, exactly. Um, I think black folks, because we've experienced it, see uh, racism as something that's um, a much more pervasive thing. That's not doesn't that doesn't stem necessarily from hating a group of people. So I, I tend not to think not I tend not to talk about racism as something that we that we need to fight as a problem. I think what we need what we really need to fight are the consequences of racial uh, discrimination and difference which have persisted throughout our history. I, I would imagine uh, someone on their way home listening to the broadcast still hears uh, in our conversation racial overtones. And I can hear somebody saying, so Ellis Coast, why does everything have to always be about race? We're all Americans. How would you respond to that, um, a comment like that? Um, I would love if there was nothing uh, about racial um, inequality and difference in our conversations, but that's the reality of where we are. Um, that's the reality of why we still have ghettos. That's the reality of why we have a huge disparity between white wealth and, and black wealth. Um, I think we have to acknowledge these realities. I don't think that's the that's totality of America. I don't think the totality of the threat to democracy is a racial one. I think we have many threats to democracy. And I think we have many components of what make up um, this American experiment. But that, unfortunately, is a key one and has been throughout our history and continues to be. Uh, talk about, just in that context of, about history, talk about, and you can begin with the founders, you can answer any way you want to, but talk about the importance that the role of dissent has played in moving the needle for change in this country. Well, it's always been um, important because the because the status quo was so loathsome in many ways, and on, the only way to affect that was to either dissent or work actively to change that. So the abolitionists, you know, beginning with Frederick Douglass and and the whole group of people back then, had a lot to do uh, with ultimately bringing about the end of slavery in this country. I am with taking us to a better place. 
I would like to have you to res uh, respond to one of my long-held suppositions. I know <laughs> I'm, putting my, I'm putting myself on risk here, having you uh, publicly critique me. So, uh, But here's my supposition. I'd like to have you respond on the other end. Okay. That the peculiar history of Black Americans includes, in my view, being the moral index of the nation. Now, that doesn't mean that Black Americans are any more personally moral than anybody else. But nevertheless, this is a collective legacy that has influenced greatly the nation's moral compass and that we can, just about every movement we've had for change, tangibly or intangibly, we can attack to the Black, black experience. Your thoughts? I think that one corrective I'll make to that, you know, is that Blacks have always been in the forefront of fighting for change. Um, and that's because Black Americans have been so deeply and negatively affected by the status quo um, and had the most to win by changing the status quo. Uh, so there, there have been a lot of things, even, even, even if we talk about the racial history where Blacks have not necessarily been in the forefront. I mean, we had Chinese Exclusion Acts beginning in the, in the 1880s, uh, which until uh, after World War II, uh, and, and actually until 1965 with the, with the New Immigration Act, effectively barred most Asians from, from coming you know, to America. Uh, we had the um, internment of um, Japanese Americans uh, in World War II um, in 1942. Um, but even when you, when you see issues like that, where ultimately Japanese Americans took the lead um, in trying to get some recompense for that and correction to that, um, there were always very strong alliances with African-Americans because we identified as a group, um, even though we had not been interned in exactly, we identified as a group with that kind of racial impression. Uh, so, yes, I, I would think if, if you say that, that Blacks have been intimately involved in virtually every struggle for equality in this country, you'll be absolutely right. No, and, and, I, and I guess and I'm glad you added that because the, the way I've always thought about mm -hmm. it, even if you take a movement, let's say, that we don't necessarily associate, the free speech movement was 64. Mm -hmm. And I would say the free speech movement was a result of young people going back to UC Berkeley having experience with freedom from 64. So that's the intangible influence. Because that's how I was thinking about it. I think you're absolutely right. When uh, reflecting on America's current challenges, are we still grappling with that initial paradox when the Constitution was ratified? Because based on citizenship, full citizenship, because um, a lot of states had, you know, uh, voting restrictions for white male landowners. So, mm -hmm. uh, so, so you roughly had roughly uh, 16% of the population were full citizens. And so 84% was disenfranchised. Are we still grappling in some ways with that legacy? Um, yes, in different ways. I mean, at, at this point, obviously, anyone who's an American citizen is at least entitled to vote. Um, doesn't necessarily mean you're allowed to vote and, and for, for lots of reasons, but at least is entitled to vote. So we're not exactly we're not dealing exactly with that legacy, but we are still dealing with a legacy of democracy not being something that we all share equally uh, in many ways. I mean, part of it um, has to do with some of the issues we, we, we were talking about having to do, excuse me, with, with um, electoral repression. 
Uh, part of it is that um, political participation these days has a lot to do with money. Um, if you have more money to um, invest in politicians you know, who owe you a favor, you have a much stronger political voice. Uh, we also have structural issues. Um, in you know, the short life and curious death of free speech, which is a book I published a couple of years ago. One of the things that, that I point out uh, is that structurally, we have a democracy that allows a very small minority to control things. Look at the Senate, for instance. Um, the Senate allows there to have, it allows each state to have two senators, regardless of size. So this may have made a certain sense, a certain amount of sense back um, when the Constitution was enacted, uh, when the largest state was Virginia, uh, the smallest state was Delaware, and Virginia was eight times the size of Delaware, um, uh, 12 times if you included enslaved persons in the count. But we now have a situation where the largest state, California, uh, has close to 40 million people, and the smallest state, Wyoming, has less than 600,000. Uh, the disparity there is that, you know, California is 68 times the size of Wyoming, and yet has the same amount of power in the Senate. You know, um, the result of that is that a very small proportion of this country, 18% by my, cal my calculation, controls a majority of Senate votes. That's structural. Um, that's another kind of inequality, and it's another kind of inequality that's that's directly counter to democracy. And when you when you when you overlay that with the reality that these uh, small, um, not densely populated states tend to be overwhelmingly white and more conservative, uh, you get some sense of why we have a um, Supreme Court that's out of touch with the majority of Americans because the Supreme Court uh, was basically delivered to us by a Senate um, majority of, uh, by Senate minority of 18% voting against the interests of um, the, um, over, of over 80% of American voters. Um, that's a structural problem, which, gets, which was a little bit more complicated than some of the issues we were talking about, but it gets to another aspect of American society that, that's problematic. Um, George Washington, has been quoted as saying that he didn't think that, he thought this, he gave this constitution, I think, you know, 20 years uh, in terms of how long it would last. And we often congratulate ourselves by saying, well, wow, you know, here we are um, in 2021, 2023, I should say. Um, and we still have this constitution, what a great achievement. And in some sense it is a great achievement, but it's also, a great failure in the sense that we have locked into places systems that maybe made sense in 1789 that don't make sense now. And we can't change them for two reasons. One, because the constitution is so difficult to change. I mean, it requires a two third vote um, in both the houses of, of Congress uh, and a three fourths, and a three fourths vote of the, of the, of, of the states. Um, so, you know, we're, we're stuck with these structures that don't make sense. Um, and even if we try to change it, because politics is so um, pugnacious, you know, um, and polarized now, 
we're likely to end up making things worse as opposed to better. So, so, so we're really on the horns of a dilemma here. Okay, Ellis Coase, um, after uh, reading your, your op-ed in the LA Times, um, the title being Black History is a century-old relic, one we still need. Um, the public morality made you king for a day. I'm sorry, what did you just say? Your first act, it, which, no, I said the public morality made you king for a day. You didn't know oh, that, but you're, you're king for no. a day. You, you, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so here's your, your first act. So now that you know you're king for a day, let me tell you what your first act was. Your first act was to eliminate Black History Month with the proviso that all, not only Black History Month, but other marginalized histories, you got rid of them all, and you made sure that you had a fully integrated American canon. That's your first act. Okay. Now, I believe in doing that, you would create a strange coalition of opposition. Not only you'd have the usual suspects, the ones we talked about earlier, rooted in fear, but you might have some people we might assume that are proponents of the current system uh, that might also align with them. And, I, and, my, and so the point being that it, it would indicate this historical immaturity that it infects both sides. And I'd like to have you comment on that. Okay, I'm not quite sure I get the concept though. So, so you got rid of Black History Month. You got rid of all of right. them, okay? Mm -hmm. You got rid of all of them. And what I'm saying to you is, okay, you have the usual suspects of, of, of white fear. Right. You'd also have some black folk in coalition with them because you've just changed the status quo. And that would be an indication of how this historical immaturity infects both sides of the equation is what I'm saying. I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, I, I think that 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 change is difficult for all kinds of people. I, I think even when we change from a society where um, Jim Crow was the expectation to was a society where there was at least the possibility of integration, um, there were a lot of uh, African Americans who spoke very strongly against integration. Um, you know, the the fear of change is not a white fear. It's a, it's a fear that it's almost a universal fear, to, at least to some extent, among people. Even if that change will be beneficial. Ellis Coulson, best-selling author, sir. I, I want to thank you uh, for giving us uh, your time today on the Public Morality. It's been much appreciated. It's been an honor, sir, to be in conversation with you. A uh, real pleasure, Byron, and thank you for asking. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams.